Am I Reister or am I wrong? Of course, this is the intersection where sports, business, society, and pop culture meet the truth. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, fire. Facts only allowed here. Check your feelings at the door. No BS is allowed because I keep it 100. Great guest today, man. So instead of our usual uh, Reister or wrong, I had to bring in a guest. Dr. Chris Matman. He is the division manager for artificial intelligence, analytics, and innovation development organization in the information technology and solutions directorate at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's got a bunch of other titles as well. This is a smart man, a very, very smart man. And he's going to talk to us about all sorts of things about sports and how analytics and data are impacting the sport everything from going for it on fourth down three-point shots two-point shots baseball especially which is so heavily reliant upon analytics and how those things factor into our everyday life as it comes to elections he talks to us about how to get different candidates and not just get the same old tire thing over and over again uh him and mark cuban had a great suggestion um the dark web versus the deep web and data security talks to us about all of that coronavirus modeling and the nsa versus facebook who actually has more information on us and how is it used we're going to talk about so many amazing things hope you guys really enjoy it and of course make sure that you share the podcast Tell a friend about the podcast, send it to him, email it to him, text him, whatever it is, because there will be great information in here. Um, and please make sure that you subscribe and uh, you can shoot me an email, gwpodcast at unafraidshow.com. And you can listen to me as well on the Pac-12 Apostles podcast and Fox Sports Radio Sundays, 2 to 5 p.m. and 5 to 8 eastern time on sunday as well and of course some weekdays filling in okay let's get to the pot dr chris matman rocket scientist jet propulsion lab okay like i I was looking at you and when we were getting ready for the podcast and i was like i don't even know how to introduce this man like i'm looking at at artificial intelligence uh, uh cit analytics innovation development organization i'm like wow i'm interviewing somebody who is way smarter than than i am i better be ready don't be so sure of that george we'll see if i can uh, undo those perceptions <laughs> so you are a uh like well actually let the, let's tell people exactly first what you do because you are a rocket scientist you do data science like what is your like what do you do Yeah. So I've been at JPL 20 years. I work at uh, the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I manage the Department of uh, Artificial Intelligence, uh, Innovation, and, uh, you know, Analytics. And um, basically what I do is I spent my first 10 years at JPL uh, basically building software uh, for the scientists, for the Earth scientists and the planetary scientists to manage their data. So when it comes down from space or off of an airplane or in the ground with some sensor stuck in the snow, that that data is sort of captured and disseminated to people, you know, throughout the world and people can, you know, analyze it eventually might get turned into a policy or, you know, scientists might make some discoveries off of that. That was my first 10 years. My latter, my last 10 years at JPL have been really focused on technology development, uh, building search engines, scouring the dark web, uh, you know, making information technology more efficient. And uh, so that's that's kind of what I work on now. And I don't do it as much myself anymore. I got a big team of people that do it. But, you know, I do some things that they let me do. Okay, real real quick, because we were going to jump into sports quickly. But but you talked about the information coming from planes and satellites and all this stuff. And I know this is going to sound like a, a very elementary question. But, okay, so how do black boxes survive plane crashes? And why can't you make the plane out of the black box? That's, well, that's a, you know, we are jumping, we are jumping right into it. I mean, this, this is going to tie back to sports like everything does, but you know, the reality is those things are hardened, they're protected and things like that. And they're on solid state media. 
just like, you know, just like your, your phone, you know, or your computer uses solid state media. These are powerful things. You can wash those types of, of drives, you know, and things like that. And still, and even in a big crash, those things might, you know, hang around. So they are robust, they're resilient. Um, you know, so the data itself, you know, even on things like that ought to be there. The challenge, you know, getting it off isn't in fact getting the data off of it. Sometimes it's getting to the actual drive because it's, you know, it's, it's in a crash. It's been, you know, it's trapped under metal. It's, you know, things like that. Usually by the time they can get it because of the, the nature of that media and material, they didn't get the data off. It's just, it's just getting there. And then, oh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing, you know, being that maybe in the future, maybe in five, 10 years for us, all that data, you know, if they really were smart, they get that data off of the plane in situ while it's up and just put it in the cloud. Well, it's, there's nothing that's stopping it from doing it on a plane, on a helicopter, things like that. Those boxes ought to be uploading the data to the cloud. Oh, r- real time. The, yeah. That way, that way, then that way, if it crashes in an ocean or something, that's way you're not trying to recover it, that you can actually, I mean, it's, it's already there. Yep. That makes sense. And then it'll, it'll probably help the NTSB and um, like actually piece together what happened in flights a lot better and stuff like that. Hmm, interesting. Um, you are an LA sports fan. You are a sports fan. I, okay. So as a, as a, as a smart man who looks at data and analytics and all of this on a daily basis, are you frustrated watching sports? Like how do you watch sports knowing that, that you could put together some, some algorithm to run 50 million, uh, simulations that could, you know, maybe predict a more optimal outcome. You know, it's funny, you know, you know, we talk about this, it's, you know, that's why you play the games, you know, it's, it's, you know, the things you can't measure a lot with analytics and AI is heart, you know, and things like that. You and I, you know, we hit each other up on Twitter. We talk about this on social media, things like baseball, Dave Roberts, analytics, you know, things like that. I mean, it's great. At the same time, people have to execute. And you know that as a former athlete, former professional, you could do all the simulations and modeling you want in the world, but there's nothing that represents like your ability to, to execute those things. For me, you know, in baseball, <laughs> that's sort of the thing where analytics has kind of been there the most, you know, for the longest time. They can, they, they can reasonably, with machine learning, predict based on your stats whether you're going to make the Hall of Fame or not. That's just like your static stats. But we go beyond that now. Like now we have on TV balls and strikes, those zones which you and I knew growing up as a kid. We're like, that's not a, that's not a strike. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's moving his zone. Now yeah. we know we've got sensors. We got LIDAR in there. We know where those things are. And they, you know, they used to think the public was too dumb to see that stuff. Now they display it to us. You know, Joe Buck's sitting there breaking on the, it's all there in the strikes and we can see it. So baseball has obviously been the leader in terms of analytics. You know, but even for football and stuff, you know, you, you and I know this from football and things like catapult sensors that they put underneath people's pads now, you know, that see whether or not you're, you know, where your location is, how fast you are. There's a lot that they can tell from things like that. I've been involved in football activities where they're trying to measure how many times a quarterback throws. Well, why? Because the theory is that quarterbacks are like pitchers. We wear them out sometimes in practice, but that doesn't show, you know, eventually into a yeah. game when they underperform, you know, and things like that. So even, you know, sensors, wearables, data, analytics. So, so anyways, for me, at least thinking about all this stuff when I watch sports or when I talk about it online, I'm usually coming at it from that perspective. And I've seen you do this too, man. You're going to put your opinion out there. It doesn't matter. And you know what? Sometimes I think you're a data guy too. Because yes. data makes you unafraid to talk about things that people don't like talking about, you know? Yeah, because, see, the, the way – I'm a big believer in, in analytics. But my version of analytics, the way I would use them as a coach or a general manager would be uh, a term that I like to use, manalytics, where where I take the analytics and, and the data, because especially in baseball, right? where you're, you're normally playing 162 games. They're, they're taking data from that versus historical data from your previous seasons. And then, but like, but the, the thing about data is you need more of it to be more accurate. And yes, that works over the course. Like you, you can build a model with these players that will be close to accurate. That'll get you to the playoffs. And um, provided that people just don't have weird outlier seasons. But so you'll know whether you're going to make it to the playoffs or not. But then when you get in five or three, three, five or seven game series like they had this year in the playoffs or five or seven games like normal, 
the analytics don't always match up because there's not a big enough sample size. So That's I'm right. like, so I'm like, I, I don't understand why you get Dave Roberts or some of these other um, managers who listen exclusively, it seems like exclusively to the computer when logic tells you there's not enough data that you have to be able to look in a guy's eyes or feel the situation and say, all right, this isn't the right move. I know the computer is telling me to take this guy out, but he just struck out. He just got eight straight outs. I'm not taking him out. Dude, same, exactly the same. And so your analytics, maybe you could recast it too and say, really all it does is it represents that models are static. You know, Manalytics, the knowledge is we need to be taking data at all times. And some big companies, you know, Google, Facebook, all this, they get that. They get that when you build models, you have to update them constantly, right? Because human beings, we're just one big, you know, CPU, GPU, whatever, you know, nowadays. And that's what we're doing. You and I can see that because we're watching the game live. Sure, you have a static model offline and, and you and I and our brains and human beings, we have our own static models, but those are static. We got to take in the new inputs too and see, oh, something's changed. You know, yeah. we, we got to make a different decision. So George, uh, when you're done with this podcast and also at Fox, you, you can come work for me at JPL, buddy. Dude, so. hey, well, on, on, on a serious note, like <laughs> I was a, like when, when I got to college, I tested out of like all the math. Like I started in 200 level math classes. Like I was always phenomenal in math. Like that was my jam. Like I, I was like, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make uh, money being a mathematician, but this, <laughs> it, it sounds fun. Um, I was always in, in, into that. And, but these, uh, analytics and analytics don't just factor into baseball and football. The thing that I always talk about is going forward on fourth down because the statistics tell you that going forward on fourth down is more optimal, but you find so many coaches that want to play run and punt football. And I'm like, if you actually attack the game, like you have four downs to get every, every first down. Granted, there are some situations where it's not optimal to, to, to do that, especially late game or, you know what I mean? End of, end of half where you can put yourself in a, put the other team in a scoring position and, and maybe you don't have enough time to go score or something like that. But I just don't understand how, how coaches can be so rigid when everything says, Go for it on fourth down because the numbers support it. Absolutely. The numbers support it and, you know, our belief. And even if you really studied, you know, people, that's where it's sort of the reverse feels. You know, the feels tell them, oh, you know, the feels are telling me, you know, that, and if there are crowds, you know, I'm talking post-COVID era and we will get there. You know, I reject the word new normal. We'll get to the post-COVID era. But, you know, the feels are giving them different answers than where the data is, you know, there. And so, so you know, we have to, in, in, you know, I'm going to grab your term, in analytics, we have to do both scenarios. We have to know when it's like, okay, the model's static, we got to ignore this, or we got to go based on our, our feels. But then sometimes you do need to use that stuff, man, go for it. And, and, you know, I mean, you know, Pete Carroll was a legend at this in SC, you know, he got it, but then plenty of people, you know, plenty of people figured, plenty of people know whether to do it, but I think they rely too much on the fields there, especially when there are crowds and things like that. Oh yeah. And they're worried about not getting fired. And, and I'm looking at the trend for particularly the NFL, like in 2017, they went for it on fourth down 485 times, got it 223 um, for 46%. And a lot of those are, are late game sit situations, 2018, big uptick, of 539 for 300 at 56%. And, um, 19, 595 for 285 at 48%. And this year, we're on pace for well over 600, closer to like 650. And they're converting at almost 54%. Those and are I'm insane. Saying, <laughs> yeah. If you, and, and also, like that in the, um, and in, um, and teams last year were only completing, uh, converting 39% of third downs. And this year, they're only completing 43% of third downs. So, and, and I think that part of it is, is that they're not approaching third down with a fourth down 
mentality. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I was thinking while you were saying that too, George, is like, you got to look on it. You got to go two downs before. And this is what chess players do, right? Chess players don't sit there and they think about the current move or the next move. There are seven moves, you know, in advance, you know, and it's the same type of long game strategy that you got to play, you know, you got to play when you deal with, apologies, that you got to play when you're dealing with football too. You, you got you to also go beyond even that series, you know, too. You know, you got to be thinking, all right, like, what's my scenario? Like, okay, three, if, if I give this up, that's okay. Three downs later, you know, we're going to stop them. And you know what? We got four downs again. But you know what? It's like too many people give up their last down, you know, it's, and they're not thinking like, it's like exactly like you said. But this is the thing. If we take it back to modeling, you have to model all the features. So this is why people, they're so confident, right? You know, they talk about models. Oh, you know, the model tells me this. The analytics tell me this. couple of things, and you see me tweet this out related to things like polls and things like that recently. I always tell people, what are the inputs to the model? You know, what are the inputs? What are the, what are the error bars in the model? What's the what are, what are What are What are error bars? Error bars are basically oh, like- Oh, I say error bars. Error okay. bars, man. Every time you make a prediction, there's error bars with that, you know? And, and this is what they don't tell you, you know? It's like, yeah, I made a prediction, but did you know that 40% of the time it's wrong? You know, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. things, they never tell you that, you know? And, and so it, it, it works the same in football. And the reason for that are all the things you talk about. It's like, they're worried about getting fired. They're worrying about all the hidden things that we didn't model, you know? So how do you, in, in, I guess when you're doing all your AI work or building models, like how do you account for the human element or can you account for it? Because, because we are creatures who, yes, some people react to how they feel more than other people do, but emotions factor into it, your financial situation, uh, job security. Like how do you factor in, I guess, like, a deviation or something for that people are going to and and they're already starting and if you think about this this is what financial markets do if you or i were to go get hired in any big you know hedge fund or finance company one of the one of the things we might start out doing is modeling the world right so you can't just make financial decisions about yourself based on what's going on here in your you know state county things like that what's going on even in the u.s you got to look at the global markets you got to look at and consider things like What's going on with, you know, futures? You got to consider what's going on. Is there civil unrest in an area that has some key element of the supply chain? That's what big financial companies do. This is coming, this is coming to sports in a big way. And, uh, you know, the challenge before was sort of availability of some of this information, you know, or access to it or sports, like you said, you know, like we talk about, they just didn't think it was like, oh, buying data about external markets, like that shouldn't factor into decisions that we make on the field. Not anymore, dude. It, it is now because yeah. people are, are saying that's the information that tells us all this hidden properties about our coach or in-game situations, whether it's football, baseball, and things like that. It's all that hidden stuff like you're talking about, George, that would give us better outcomes in terms of the bias or the missing features that we didn't have before. Well, can you account for that? I mean, like, are, are there factors that you can put into a model for, I mean, there, there's obviously stuff for, for, for weather, wind, you, you, you know, external things that, that are, you know, kind of static, you, you, you know, like if you know that the, the wind, the average wind is going to be uh, 10, 10 degrees blowing south, southeast, you can factor that into a model, but how do you factor, I mean, and then you have uh, injuries, like you brought up with a quarterback, you have overuse, like you can't measure how much his shoulder hurts or yep. how sprained his knee is. So, I, I mean, I get that that's what makes sports so unpredictable, but when, but when analytics are running games, like they're running baseball, they are becoming more prevalent in football, especially like practice data, like how many miles did this person run all of this in terms of re recovery, but how do you factor in, can emotion be factored in? I should ask. Yeah, dude, it can. And, and, but it's a, for us, you know, it's a cost benefit trade-off until people start seeing that those were the things that they didn't get it right. And it was the reason they lost the game and it was a critical game or something like that. And they could have actually modeled it. They're not going to do it, you know, or they're going to rely on the fields, you know, for it. 
the crazy thing, you know, for you and I in the world, this goes beyond sports and just for your listeners and everything else. The crazy thing is you start to realize why Elon and some of these people are afraid of AI and things like that. I'm not saying like, go be afraid of AI and everything, but what you start to realize is there is an abundance of information that allows us to predict pretty much anything, you know, nowadays, you know, like for instance, maybe, maybe that coach made a bad decision because something's going bad in their life, you know, or whatever that actually you could have got if you bought their Facebook data or if you bought some of this data or some of the social media data is available, like, or they don't just sell it directly, but they sell some ancillary thing. It's why companies know if you've been, you know, setting up registries and things like that, that maybe your significant other is, uh, you know, about to have a child you know, and things like yeah. that. They know you're pregnant before you announced it, right? You know, based on your web history. So that same availability of information, these are ancillary signals that could be used, but they'll never do it until it matters or gives them some competitive edge. But that's the way it's, it's, it's going to happen. Like it's yeah. there, you know? See, so, and that, that, that leads me <laughs> into the next thing, which is, so, so you just brought up Facebook specifically. And I remember what, five, 10 years ago, everybody, well, when, when people first found out that the government could listen to you potentially through your television and, and all of this, and people were like, Oh, the, the, uh, the NSA, they've got, you know, Edward Snowden, they got all this information. And then I just watched the social, the dilemma on Netflix. I'm like, and that freaked me out because I'm realizing how much information do these tech companies really have? And so I will ask you, who knows more about us, the NSA or Facebook? Uh, I mean, let me turn the question around on you. Uh, it's, it's what are they going to do with that information first that's going to drive my answer to it. Facebook probably drives, you know, they may... They may have more information about you or less. I don't know. You know, my knowledge of this is maybe circa 2013. In 2013, there is an infinite ability and, in, you know, basically to store data. There was a big change there. You know, computer systems, uh, storage, computation, cloud computing, the ability to buy hardware was, we realized in economies of scale on that. It was cheap. We could just, basically, you know, there was a study that was done in sort of the mid 2000s that said about a terabyte of hard drive space could store your whole social everything, your emails, your whole digital life for your whole life. But that really predated social media. You know, it's like now by current estimates, probably 10 times that because guess what? We're kind of loud. Some people like me or you are others yeah. on social media. And, and so now the estimates have gone higher. So circa 2013, all the NSA and the government and the things that we hear read about in the media, all they were doing was taking advantage of that ability to really store, store it all. The question for them is what they use it for, right? You know, and, and or investigations, or they need to look up stuff on you. The more the different use case, like Facebook, right? What are they using it for? They're using to it more sell you things. basically yeah. to actively every day. You know, they're using it to, to sell you stuff. They're using it to sell you to other people, so that downstream people can either sell you stuff, or that, or or they can generate revenue for an insurance company based on your patterns or things. All sorts of derived business. You know, and so Facebook, you know, maybe Facebook has more data than NSA. I don't know, but I can tell you Facebook uses it way more unless you, you know. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah unless you're where doing some the, bad uh, stuff. NSA has to have a reason to, <laughs> yep. to access this information. That's but right. Facebook is actively using this information. That's and right. That, and, and that makes me ask about where you, that, that you see now, like one of the, I don't know whether it's just because of the election or just in general, big tech companies having so much power, but these are like, some of them are private companies. Some of them are publicly traded companies. And then people are uh, talking about that they should be broken up because they're monopolies. But even if you break them up, it's the same situation. And uh, so uh, my family, we, we own an Amazon delivery business. And just seeing how much information I have access to from Amazon is just like crazy. And the amount of information that they have, and I understand how their businesses are set up, dude, they are the most powerful company in the world. And they are going to own pretty much and control pretty much everything that Facebook or Apple does not control. And there's no stopping it. 
because because of the way that they're set up too because they actually don't own some of the companies they're they're like third party companies so then they technically not as big as people think they are totally and um it's awesome in, in a way too that you're right in the thick of it i could tell you're you're looking at those reports in the amazon console and things like that and like yeah. your eyes are lighting up yeah it's crazy you know like we used to say a long time ago microsoft was the big evil company right you know 20 years ago or whatever because when you and I were growing up, you know, Windows was the prevailing thing. I know when I was at USC studying, they shoved Windows down our throats. That was the big thing when I was studying computer science. Uh, you know, to be honest, probably I'm less afraid of, of companies like Microsoft nowadays because, to be honest, they ate a slice of humble pie a little bit when Google and the rest of them were eating their lunch, you know, yeah. and, the, and the social media companies. But nowadays, you think about that as like absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'm not saying like Amazon's the most corrupt company in the world, but you got to wonder at some of these or Google, you got to wonder, you know, when they when they do achieve that kind of horizontal landscape and really control of everything, there's less incentive in market ice, in market capital type worlds to basically, you know, derive, you know, the the good properties that as consumers we want, you know, for companies to give us that they do through competition. And so like, I mean, you know, none of neither you or I are lawyers or things like that. That's some of the reasons that drives people to think about those types of like breaking stuff up, you know, or whatever in the world. And, you know, I'm not saying it's the right decision either. You know, if you look at why they did it to Microsoft back in the day, it's the same argument that they're going after, um, you know, basically Google nowadays too. It's like, they're trying to say, because their browser is the default browser on like iPhones, just like back 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 in the day when they went after Microsoft and antitrust, they said, oh, it's because Internet Explorer is the default browser. It's like they're attacking that because, to be honest, our government doesn't really super understand. Correct. That's the thing that I yeah. noticed the most when they had yeah. those Senate hearings. Yep. I'm like, you don't understand. Like you, you old person, you don't understand how this works. I know. Although I got to give credit, you know, to AOC. I saw this recently. She was on Twitch. She was playing. Dude, my my 11-year-old. She's also under 40. I know. I know. But she's not representative. I know. She's definitely not. I mean, she's a she's a representative, but she's not representative of the traditional, I'd say, double age, you know, the age people that are in, you know, Congress and stuff. But I, yeah, I got to give her credit. What was she playing? What's that game? Uh, among us among us yeah my my 11 year old loves that yeah my son my son cj yep. like that's his thing i i was gonna show her i gotta show him the video of aoc on twitch i mean i don't always agree with you know her politics and stuff like that for me you know personally but i let i that endeared her to me even so much more i'm like she's on twitch playing this friggin' among us yeah game. This is great. <laughs> yeah, know? dude. And they had over 400,000 people watching. I know. I mean, and that is that is the thing that I have. I'm kind of jealous of kids the, these days because when I was growing up, I knew what I wanted to. So I, I wanted to be a professional athlete, then a businessman and in entertainment. I knew this, right? But I made those choices because what I really wanted to be wasn't an option. I wanted to be a gamer. Like, and I, I was always super good at video games. Like I, and I was willing to dedicate my, myself to it, but it wasn't a career path. And, and my, my school didn't offer, you know, like game design and things like this that you can get at schools now. So being a, a programmer or building video games, that wasn't an option for me either. So I'm kind of jealous of kids now, but I do love the fact that that it is a career path and that esports are bigger than some sports now. And they're they're projecting out to generate more revenue than, you know, than well, some of them are already generating more than than hockey is already creeping up on baseball dude the movie industry that was that i read that i read that like in the last day or two it's like esports is like generating in some cases more money than particular demographics in the movie industry you know yeah. it's it's nuts yeah because but like you like you mentioned with twitch and among us it's just an it, it's an app-based game like it's like it's intuitive but it's not like it, it's not like madden you know it doesn't take the same amount of dude dude barry sanders uh, sweep right you know what was that man 94 yeah you know, that, that was the key man i used to rush for a thousand yards every game just like sweep right every play <laughs> barry sanders detroit lions you know <laughs> yep um uh, another thing that you talk about a lot 
is actually before we even get back to it, I want to go back to the the video games because you are me and you are the same age at least for the next seven days, and you are a guy. So obviously, you are very accomplished. You have a lot of people work for you, all of that, and you have you know like you have a family, all of this, but you still find time for Street Fighter. Street Fighter 2, man, and uh, I've been playing Turbo a lot lately. Yeah, ever since someone told me, so I got an Xbox a couple years ago. My wife and I were like, we didn't have video games. We had iPhones because, you know, like kids, my, so I have three kids. I have a three-year-old daughter. She's beautiful. I've got a five-year-old middle son, awesome dude. And then I got my 11-year-old who, you know, is an athlete, good at, like you, George. He's good at, he loves math and science. You know, I just love this guy. He's, he's hurting during the pandemic right now. It's, it's hurting a lot of those, those students, you know? And yeah. so we had iPhone. And then a couple of years ago, I'm like, oh, let me, let's, you know, have, let's have Santa bring him the Xbox. But, you know, you and I know why. I mean, hold on. Let me make sure my wife's not. I wanted to play too, dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you yeah. know? And so we got the Xbox. And so immediately I'm just like, okay, we're going to need Call of Duty. We're going to need all the bad games. Yeah. You know? we're going to play them together. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> and so we get into all that. And so, yeah, we've been, we've been gaming a lot. So anyway, someone told me my favorite, you know, back in the day when we used to walk to 7-Eleven and play Street Fighter on the arcade, that was my game. And so, yeah, yeah someone told me recently, I think it was, it might've been Josh Webb, you know, fight on twists or so. But somebody told me recently, it's like, hey, you could get that on the Xbox Street Fighter collection. Yeah. Oh boy, I had that the next day, I, you know, from GameStop. I've been playing that a ton. <laughs> yeah, man. See, that's the that's the kind of thing where you still have the connection to your childhood. Like I was playing um uh Tecmo Bowl with 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 my son on my original Nintendo. Like I got it hooked up to the to, to the smart TV. The only thing is that Duck Hunt doesn't work on smart TVs. Oh, I wouldn't even have guessed that. I I, yeah. I I couldn't even find my old, I think it's sitting in a pawn shop somewhere. So good for you, bro, for keeping it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited about that. Um, well, uh, I want to go back to the modeling for a second because the, the thing that's impacting sports more than anything else right now is COVID. And the coronavirus, the games are being postponed, they're being canceled, Seasons have been rearranged, shortened, modified. Um, and I, I would say that more than anything else in 2020, coronavirus models have been modeled the most. Like, how do you make these models? How accurate are them? Are, are they like, because there's so much misinformation out, uh, out there, like, where is somewhere that somebody smart like you who studies data, knows data, and knows when people are doing it incorrectly, where do you go to find out information? That's a great question. So, so nowadays, I mean, so that, that John Hopkins board is, is really good. The coronavirus dashboard that, you know, is like widely cited, you know, everywhere. That's a good dashboard for communicating it. But the questions you should ask and you see me maybe tweeting about this sometimes, and I talk about it. I talk about it for everything, you know, for voting, for all these issues now. What they are is it's a chain of custody issue. You know, you have to, it's not like the postal service is unreliable. It's super reliable for everything normally, but this is a pandemic and these are different situations. It's the same with like, say, I'm going to try and simplify this into kind of a manageable chunk, hopefully, you know, so excuse me for thinking about this for a second. But so take the coronavirus, take testing. Testing is, you hear, testing, tracing, and isolating. These are, these are the bread and butter for how you have a successful response. And we're going to talk about this book later, maybe, and things like that where we talk about it. But, you know, testing, tracing, and isolating. So when you get these data reports and dashboards, you have to ask yourself, like, broadly, when you look across the things for that, what's the chain of custody for this? And they never report this. And it's not like it's not there. It's just not widely summarized because of the way that they're trying to communicate it. When were those tests reported? So when you see that there were deaths, you know, associated with it, were they deaths that occurred in the last seven days? Did they just occur? Did they occur a month ago? Yeah. All of that stuff is like summarized into like this, basically a number, a count, and whether or not it's, it's red or yellow or some color on a map, right? It's the same thing like goes with a lot of these like big supply chain oriented operational things. You know, it's like, it's like, sure. We can model this, we can do analytics, we can report on this stuff, but you have to ask those other questions. 
you know, about it sometimes. And just, just don't accept everything that's kind of, and I don't think you do this. And I don't think your listeners do too, but I'm just saying we ask, we want people to ask questions. It is not anti-science to ask questions. In fact, if you look at the scientific process, part of that is asking questions. It's trying to validate your hypotheses and things like that. So, so, so a couple things that the Johns Hopkins dashboard is a great dashboard for COVID, but just ask some questions. What deaths are being reported there? Are they in the last seven days? Are they from a month ago? Do different states have different methodologies for sending in their tests, you know, and their reporting and their numbers? Was it a PCR test, you know, which are these polymerase yeah, chain yeah. reaction ones that operate differently versus were the they antigen. like those antigen tests and swabs yeah. and all that, you know? So all of that stuff gets like super dummy down into these dashboards. So all you have to do, and it's the same thing for earth science modeling and climate change and all that, is just ask questions. Ask questions about where it came from and then and then don't be so like wed into the outcome, the decision on the other end that you can't just say, what happened upstream of that and why? If you do that, you're solid, you know? How often is that the case in modeling, whether it's sports, COVID or anything else? Because, you know, like where people they try to use science or data to back up their opinion as opposed to letting the science and the data and the numbers drive their opinion well, or, or cause them to form their opinion. All day, all day. I've warned people about this. You know, I tell people, I say, you know, be careful when you put science on the ballot. Not that sci- science in its pure form is science. It's like you said, it's like if you let the data, the observations tell you that rather than try and fit what you want, you know, to come, you know, to that, that's pure science. But, you know, a lot of times, like you said, we've got something that we want to prove or we have something we want to investigate. That's not inherently wrong either. That's just a hypothesis that you want to try and validate. Yeah. And you have to either prove it or disprove it. Exactly. Exactly, George. And so that's exactly right. However, the challenge sometimes is when we let the data tell us what's going, we've got our hypothesis, and guess what? It doesn't say what we want it to say. And then people use the magic word called statistics to manipulate it. You can, I can run transformations over observations and make them tell me whatever I want it to tell me. That's, you yeah. know, statistics are, there's a lot of famous quotes about statistics, but, you know, they all boil down to you can make them tell you what you want to basically, you know, have yeah. to happen at, at the end of the day. And so a couple things just related to that, you started out amazing on this is let you have to have, let the data, the observations come to you. And then it's fine to have hypotheses. Psst. The other thing is it's fine when those are wrong. Yeah. That's the scientific method. And that's the null hypothesis. Sometimes it's wrong. That's science. Yeah, but isn't isn't the problem with that though when there is money involved? Like that that the research is funded by a certain group or a certain party or a certain something, and then that gets in the way of the actual scientific method. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. And so um, you know, the challenge the challenge with that is that sadly you know, this is true and it's been true in the U.S. for a long time. You know, if you compare our per capita spend on GDP, you know, to things like science, you know, compared to like the whole world or other countries, how much of, say, their GDP that they spend on it, we actually, our science budget is so minuscule compared to things like defense and, you know, other areas, you know, or just things that we spend things on, you know, and so a lot of times people are, you know, walking around the scientists, you know, I feel bad, you know, I, we never used to have what's called a computer science a postdoc in the area of computer science. It, a postdoc is basically like postdoctoral work where you're kind of still a student. You don't make, you know, the employee salary like if you had a full-time job, but it's kind of like in between or post your PhD and then getting a job. But now we've created this whole cast of sort of systems, this class of people, you know, in postdocs that, you know, and they, and they existed in biology and natural science and physical. We never used to have them in computer science, mostly because of, the, the dearth or the lack of ability to fund science, you know, and things like that. So I'm constantly yeah. like telling people we need to fund science more because the challenge is if you don't, someone will, and then you got to ask who's funding it sometimes, you know, for that, because sometimes yeah. they've got an outcome that they want. So. Yeah, that makes sense. So, it, and the election is coming up as well. 
And I saw that you tweeted something out. Well, you retweeted Mark Cuban because he he was talking about how because people are concerned that like our political parties, the Republicans and the Democrats have gotten so powerful that that you aren't getting optimal candidates any any uh, more. And so people were initially talking about third party candidates, third party candidates. And um, and Mark Cuban brought up a, a, a point that you echoed that that you echoed on too and he said the solution isn't more parties every party regardless of size searches for power the solution is walking away from parties expanding ranked choice voting uh so i want you to explain what ranked choice voting is to find independent legislators and um and the change starts when no party has majority in the house or senate and what and what you thought about that about the uh, Apache Software Foundation and all that? Yeah, so so I used to be on the board of the Apache Software Foundation. Um, it was um, it, it is it's a five hundred one c three nonprofit. It's basically if you look, it's kind of like a demilitarized zone where all the internet software has been developed over the last thirty years. You know, twenty yeah. to thirty years. And Apache being a nonprofit is where like the world's brain trust kind of comes to kind of not wear their company hat but to work on open source software. And one of the things that Apache have, it's a member organization since it's a 501c3, member-based organization, and they elect a board of directors, nine people to represent the membership. It's kind of like, you know, politics and things like that. And um, what they have in Apache is what they call, and it's very similar to ranked choice, it's called single transferable vote or STV voting. And basically what you do is like, if of the nine candidates, you don't just vote for your favorite, or, you know, and there might be like, let's say there's 15 nominees and there's nine board seats. Of the 15, say, candidates that they have for the board, you can do what's called STV voting, is that I could put a list of like all 15 that I want in ranked choice. And what that means is like, like let's say there's nine seats, you know, to be elected out of 15. And those, you know, let's say my first candidate, you know, my first choice or whatever, he is, he or she are, you know, elected. You yeah. Know, so that vote that I would have had would have just added to their already their win, you know, that they had. Yeah. And so what it does is it takes your next next rank, your next vote, and it uses that. It keeps going down the list and uses whatever your rank list is to like give the vote or transfer the vote to whoever needs it, whoever is still in play. And so that's if you look at these systems like rank choice, STV, and things like that. Those are actually a lot fairer systems, right? Rather than two party rule where you have, you know really it's got to be one or the other, you actually could have your vote count for, say, the person that needs it or, that, or the set of people that best represent your ranked choice or your ranked order of the things that you care about. So, so how would then, so how would two senators be elected from a, a, a state if, there, if, there's only two, if there's only two spots but you're using ranked choice? Yeah, so so the way that the, the way that you would use it is that basically like let's say that Senator A, you know, S- Senator A in, you know, whatever state, you've got two slots. Really where ranked choice would be really applicable would be like ahead of that where it's not just down to the last two candidates. It's where there's more than the amount of seats that exist. And this happens sometimes like, you know, president's an easy example. There were 16 candidates at some point, you know, for in the primaries, you know, for Republicans or for Democrats and things like that. And it's used to whittle it down. Like, let's say you already know your preferred candidate is going to, you know, is already above the threshold to be included in, say, the final five. Well, you want that vote to transfer to that's really where it's applicable, you know. But but if you really if you think about it, that's where a lot of the hedging is, you know, to really representing what your thoughts are. That's where yeah. it kind of gets whittled yeah, out. Yeah, for sure. A big pool of things that you're kind of trying to will down to that. By the time you get to the final two, it's kind of already over. But that's where he's talking. He's talking about it upstream in that in that. Oh, area. so so that means that a guy who was like an upstart this year, like an Andrew Yang, would have probably made it further through the the primaries or maybe some of the other candidates who don't have the same um history i guess as as others do that's exactly kind of what it means is that is that these people that are sort of eliminated you know way early on you know or the tulsis or the whatever of the worlds you know is that they actually are more in play for longer because your vote say for 
what's eventually going to be the person that makes it through the very thin funnel to the end is actually distributed to the people that need it upstream of that sort of ahead of time. So, yeah. Um, and, and I wanted to talk to you about the, the, the dark web, <laughs> because I, I, I saw that you have expertise on that. And we talked about data security and all that, but we, we hear deep state, dark web, all that stuff. And I'm a person, I am a person who, uh, I'm a VPN user. I, sometimes I use Tor to browse. Like I, I, I realized that, that somebody's always taping and I don't want them always taping. So like, and, and, and also I just got a, uh, on, on my credit, uh, where you have credit monitoring and all that, and they've started to monitor deep web. And they said that, oh, that one of your passwords is on the deep web. Do you want to change it? So they sent me that. Do I need to change my password? One. And two, what the hell is the, the deep web? Because I do understand that there is a different side, that there are different parts of the internet that I've learned how to get to that are basically blocked and banned from, you know, your, your, your standard browsers, like, you know, like Google and uh, Bing and stuff like that. Totally. So first change your password because you also probably may have used that password on other sites. So for sure, change it. Now the second part, um, your, the, the, the regular web is where we go and we browse things and everybody kind of knows what that is. The reality is if I told you that the regular web that you visit is only about 3% of the actual internet because what's really there is the deep web. It's the web underneath the surface and eventually the dark web. The deep web is the web behind forms where you log into things. You log into websites and actually get at the content like and do things. And it's the web when you get to an image that regularly like the crawlers at Google and other places that index the web, they stop there. Right? You know, Google doesn't have the passwords to all the websites in the world, so it can't crawl into the deep web. It can only crawl what it can get on the surface. And so companies, internal data, things like that, that's the deep web. Even more, you know, not nefarious or nefarious, depending on what you think, is the dark web. That's where an entirely new internet. You need a special type of browser, the Tor browser, to go there. It's an anonymized internet. And it started out in 2015 as like the Wild West you know, of, because that's how it yeah. all starts out. There's no rules and things like that. You know, the people, the gunslingers, you know, are the people who rule. And so it was originally invented by the Department of Defense um, as a way to exchange communication, yeah. uh, you know, and things like that. And so what happened is people said, oh, this is good where I can have anonymized traffic and represent it. Well, the bad people rode into town and uh, these were people that were selling guns, organs, they were doing human trafficking. And so when you hear about human trafficking today or whatever, a lot of it, you know, happened as an economy or a market through bad stuff going on with other countries who were doing human trafficking and other things on the dark web. They were doing it in an anonymized way because we didn't have a Google for that back then. Post 2015 and this DARPA program we were involved in called Memex, we basically built a Google for the dark web, you know, yeah. so that they could search it and the government, you know, could do it and things like that. So, so there is visibility into this, you know, what's going on and the bad stuff that's going on there now, which is good in a way, and they're making it safer. Why does all of your data end up there? Or why do people say, you know, your passwords are there? It's become this new environment where even though they know that they have the ability to like observe it and see it now, the bad guys still basically take your data leaks or things that they've gotten or information about you or buying your information from other companies or people or bad people that have stole it and yeah. they leak it. They leak it onto the dark web. And so financial companies, you know, Experian, you know, FICO, all these financial, they figured out that they need to have visibility into what's going on there because that matters. That could be a credit risk. It could be a finance risk to you because yeah. you're compromised or something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And so for, <laughs> is the dark web the, uh, a place that people, that, that they need to know how to nav navigate or are they just fine just, just, just living in the matrix? You know, I don't think you need to navigate it as a regular person, you know, in the U.S. I don't think that there's much going on there. And in fact, it's kind of like because of tactics and other things, old school, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's kind of like there, but it's not where anything like really amazing is going on. It's it's where people post a text file of passwords that they want to sell or bad other stuff, you know, and things like that. The regular people don't need to do it. But what you need to know is that financial companies, 
law enforcement and other people are watching that stuff and they're trying to like protect you. And so when you do get those notifications in your email, your password's been posted on the dark web, dude, change it. So. Okay. Well, I'm absolutely changing that password right now. Um, Oh, uh, oh, you, you already talked about that, about build, building open source communities for elections and, and, and all of that. Um, okay, so with, with, with kids now, right? I, um, I remember reading maybe like a couple years ago an article saying that like 60, either 40 or 60% of the jobs that, were, uh, that are existed, you know, two, two or three years ago, won't be in existence five or 10, 10 years from now. And so what should kids be studying? Like, like what does the future, what does the data say? What does everything say that kids should be learning in school? Because I'm, I'm a big believer in coding because if, if you can code, then you can build things like for the, the future. And it makes you either always employable or always available to create something. 100%. So if I were to recommend a programming language for kids and even, you know, 10 and up or whatever to learn nowadays, it's, it's things like Python, get started mm-hmm. early. That is the, that'll be the lingua franca for the next 10 years, I think. It's where Java was and C and stuff before. Yeah, like and C and ton- C++. And- exactly. And there's tons of examples. And, you know, so Python, you know, get your kids learning Python. I mean, more broadly than programming, science, technology, engineering, and math, but that's the cop-out answer. We all know yeah. that STEM the reality is learn Python. The other thing is that I would recommend, you know, math and statistics, like don't skimp on that stuff. Like statistics are super important. And then finally, um, you know, AI, and there are, there are ways today. I mean, AI doesn't have to mean, you know, you train deep fakes and GPT-2 where it generates fake articles, you know, or GPT-3 where it does that. Doesn't mean you have to do all that advanced stuff. You can start out with AI just doing a simple regression. You know, get a bunch of numbers in a time series, learn from you know the numbers in the past and predict the number in the future that's a regression that's a simple statistic that's ai that's the start of ai a lot of ai stuff that you think is magic is built off of simple simple statistical stuff like regression so learn that and then finally dude visualization ai data scientists that can communicate by visualizing pretty graphs like the new york times or on the la times or showing sports it's all driven by these amazing graphs that use a technology called d3 and things like if you can tell a data story you know with time and beautiful visualizations you're set (laughs) that's good well uh chris matt man dude i appreciate you joining me on the podcast today i will absolutely ask you to uh to uh come back and as soon as COVID lets up, I'm inviting you to the barbecue because I need to pick your bread. Absolutely, dude. I have I have d- decided that if you are willing to hang out with me, I, I definitely want to hang out with you because I like to hang out with with uh, with a smart with, with smart people, man. Because they say that you're the sum of the five people that you that you spend the, the, the most time around. And if I can spend time with a rocket scientist, then you know I'm I'm elevated. George, I'm not gonna eat for two days, and then I'm gonna show up, dude, and you're gonna feed me, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm right there, bro. Hey, man, I will put something good on the smoker for you. <laughs> All right, thank thanks, Chris, appreciate it. Thanks, George. All right.